We've been looking at the subject or the topic of the fear of God. And last week we introduced a passage from Isaiah that spoke of our Lord Jesus Christ or that speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it also speaks of his having the spirit of the fear of God resting upon him. Let me read that again from Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. And there shall come forth a shoot out of the stock of Jesse, and a branch out of his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Jehovah. And his delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah. And we tried to show how that the scriptures demonstrate that our Lord Jesus Christ in that incredible mystery of the God-man, that he nonetheless, and because of that, and we can't explain it because we can't understand that mystery, we just praise God that it is so. Yet he knew the fear of his Father. He knew the fear of Jehovah. But where we left off in that passage last time was where we read, in his delight shall be in the fear of Jehovah. His delight, it's not just only that he has the spirit of the fear of Jehovah, but his delight is in the fear of Jehovah. And that, to me, is incredible to discover. It's incredible to discuss. It's, in, it's incredible to, to just have that kind of wash around in your mind and, and find room in your heart that our Lord Jesus Christ delighted and in fact does delight in the fear of Jehovah. And we have read that passage from Hebrews as well. And the, the, the main feature that we're looking at from that are those two verses, and particularly one verse, but the following one, the end of that chapter, where it speaks of where whoever that preacher, whoever that writer was, that brought forth this epistle to the Hebrews, that he speaks of that godly fear. He, he says, whereby we may offer service to God with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Reverence and godly fear. We have here a word used only by the writer, the preacher of this epistle to the Hebrews. There's another word that's used more, much more often for fear. But this word is only used these three times in this epistle. Only a few times by this preacher, this writer. Besides this place that we're speaking of at the conclusion of the 12th chapter, we have the word eulabea in the verb form is made use of. In Hebrews 11, 7, Hebrews 11, 7, that renowned, if I may say, faith chapter, Hebrews 11. And where we read in that verse, that seventh verse, by faith Noah, being warned of God concerning things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear. 
prepared an ark to the saving of his house through which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. I think it's highly conspicuous in this seventh verse of Hebrews 11 that we just read in your hearing that we have here melded together, joined together, and I would assert joined together inextricably, united. In, in this verse, we have these two things that many would think are contrary one to another, that many would claim are mutually exclusive, that is, faith and fear. You're afraid? <clears throat> you have fear? Something's wrong with your faith. That's not what it says here of Noah. And he's not alone in the scriptures, but we read and we read, by faith, Noah being warned of God of concerning things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear. By faith, moved with godly fear. One man, Noah, faith and fear joined together in this individual, Noah. Are they compatible? Are they missable, as one commentator chose to use that word, which, thanks to him, I had to look up. Missable means mixable. Why not say mixable? At any rate, they're mixable. They're missable, as one has asserted. Some, as I've suggested, think that they're mutually exclusive one to the other. What is Noah doing here? What, what is it recorded that he did here in this seventh verse of Hebrews 11? And how does one build an ark with godly fear? How does one do that? That's what we're told here. That being moved with godly fear, he built this ark. And through faith... By faith, Noah did this. Eulabea, that word that I mentioned, uh, we're told that it can mean reverence, and many times it's translated reverence, and in the context, that's fine. But many times in some translations, they translate it reverence when, guess what? It should be godly fear, or it should be fear, because that's what the context requires. And it requires many times that it be considered a holy fear. Not just any fear, but a godly fear or a holy fear. Richard Trench. I didn't try to pronounce his middle name. I was going to ask Monique, but I'm, I didn't try that. But many of us know Trench in his synonyms of the Bible, synonyms of the scriptures. But what he has to say about this is, and I found it very helpful, that mingled fear and love. Can we mingle fear and love? That mingled fear and love which combine constitute the piety of man toward God. Listen to this. You know, those people that want to separate the Old and New Testament so often. The Old Testament, Trench said, it places its emphasis on the fear just emphasis, and the New Testament on the love. But then he says this, 
though there was love in the fear of God's saints then, as there must be fear in their love now. These things are mixable, missable, joined together. Two sides of a coin, we could argue. But that's this word that we're looking at. And we were reminded this morning from Hosea of God's hatred for sin. We, we can't even comprehend God's hatred for sin. Someday we will hate it as much, hopefully. But to try to comprehend it, but we read about it, we know it. We know about God's burning holiness. He's a consuming fire. We know of his burning holiness and his hatred for sin. And we heard of that this morning. Of his absolute disgust with his people for their continuance in apostasy, which is adultery from their husband, Hosea sets before us. Terrible from their husband, the living God, Jehovah. Again and again and again. Mark brought us back to that terrible matter of sin. Sin, sin, the people's wickedness. Wickedness, wickedness. God's chosen ones turning back to false gods over and over and over again and again and again. Did we not get tired of hearing Mark harp on that issue? Did we not wish that he would shut up about it? There are many churches, you know, and preachers so-called who have promised that they will never speak to their people of sin. They will never say anything about repentance. Let us not hear of sin and repentance as the hue and cry of so many of these churches, so many multitudes of professing Christians belonging to like-minded churches. They don't want to hear anything about this, and so they don't. And what they end up is having religious clubs. They're not churches at all. Let us not hear of sin and repentance. So you didn't answer my question. It was rhetorical, by the way. Didn't you get tired of hearing Mark go on and on about sin? Did you not become weary of Hosea's? Constant references to the apostasy of God's people. Brother and sister, if we grew weary, if we grew weary and tired of all this wickedness, we who are sinners ourselves and are as an unclean thing, if we grew tired of that chant, that on and on about this wickedness, this sin, this apostasy, this turning back, how must it have wearied God who is of pure eyes and to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity? How much it must have tired him to have it set before him day after day, month after month, year after year, generation after generation. We need to hear about it. If we didn't need to hear about it, 
The Holy Spirit wouldn't have put the book of Hosea in our scriptures. If we didn't need to hear about it, Hosea wouldn't have spoken of it. If we didn't need to hear about it, Mark wouldn't have preached on it. Adding to that message from Hosea this morning, add to that the theology class from this past Thursday, as we were reminded of the great and terrible flood. The great and terrible flood. What a thing that was. It was really interesting to hear that study Thursday night and see it in a light that we hadn't necessarily seen it in before. The whole earth covered up. Mountains covered up. Mountains that may not have been as tall then as many that we have today, but nonetheless the scriptures say the earth was covered with water. Every living thing that breathed died. Except those things that could exist in water, of course. We could paraphrase, I believe, the Apostle's language in Ephesians when he speaks so gloriously about the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. But we could paraphrase that, could we not? And we could say we cannot apprehend with all the saints What was the breadth and length and height and depth of that flood? Nor to know the wrath of God which passeth knowledge. That we may be filled with the fear of God. Read about the flood again. Read about the flood again. See what the wrath of God is capable of. If it weren't for Jesus Christ standing in the gap for us. If it weren't for the mediator of the new covenant. See what the wrath of God has done. And see what it will do to some. Should the people of God fear him? As I've already indicated, some men choose to think of this as a dichotomy. Two things that are not to be joined together, that are mutually exclusive. This dichotomy between the wrathful God, as they say of the Old Testament, and the meek and lowly Jesus of the New Testament. Oh, give me Jesus. I don't want that God. You can't have one without the other. Jesus said clearly, I and my Father are one. Many have portrayed Noah in Sunday school lessons as Chuck brought out Thursday night. Many have portrayed Noah on deck, if you will, although there wasn't really a deck on that box that we call an ark. But they've portrayed him nonetheless this way. You can probably get some little roll-around-on-wheel toys that are arcs with, with little Lego figures in them or something, and they're all smiling, and Noah's smiling. Everybody's happy, happy, happy. Smiling on deck with a bunch of cute pairs of animals who are also all smiles. And these people that have portrayed this event in Scripture in this way, 
They're usually the same men that will tell you that God is love and has a wonderful plan for your life. God is love and has a wonderful plan for your life. Investigate. I suggest investigate the horrific nature of the flood of God's wrath. Sometime sooner than later. Investigate it again. And then try to imagine Noah standing on the deck of this Caribbean cruise ship and calling out to all the people as the waters are rising, calling out to all the people, God is love and has a wonderful plan for your life. God is love and has a wonderful plan for your life while their lifeless bodies are floating all around. Or maybe some are still trying to claw the door open. But the door was closed by God. While perhaps some are screaming in absolute horror at the judgment of God. Have you ever thought about these things? That the lifting up that they are experiencing is not the rapture becomes apparent as they witness the tops of mountains disappearing beneath the rising water from their sight forever. Really, can you imagine Noah crying out, God has a wonderful plan for you. But I believe you could imagine that scene. You could imagine that horrific scene. If Noah were able to be outside of the ark or if he had a speaker on there. You could imagine him crying out to those people. To anyone that could still hear. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. God hates sin. In the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the scriptures. In the Septuagint, Eulabea, that word that we mentioned, it's used a couple of times in Joshua 22, for example. In Joshua chapter 22, <coughs> and at verse 24. This is that account of the skirmish or the battle between tribes of the Israelites. And this is, this is where the, we read the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and spake unto the heads of the thousands of Israel, the mighty one, the God, Jehovah, the mighty one, God, Jehovah, he knoweth, and Israel he shall know if it be in rebellion. They were charging them with putting up a, 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 an idol at the Jordan, that they were going to worship someone other than God, some false god. And so they were challenging them with regard to this. They said that we have built us an altar to turn away from following Jehovah if we've done this. They're crying out. Let Jehovah himself require it. But they say in verse 24, and if we have not rather out of carefulness done this, out of carefulness, that's the word that the Greek translators 
chose to use for eulabeia, and that is one reasonable translation of that word, carefulness, circumspectly, carefully. What was it our, one of our presidents used to say a lot, prudent. That's, that's the word. That, that that would be, and it's a plausible translation of that word, eulabeia. And then there's another, there's another use of the word by the Septuagint, and that's simply in Proverbs 28, 14, where we read, happy is the man that feareth always. And that's a translation of eulabeia, that reverences always. And I believe that in the case of Noah, we find it most conspicuous, as we've said, that faith and fear are not mutually exclusive. He is being extolled here. Noah is being extolled here in the scriptures for both his faith as well as his godly fear unto obedience. That's where we get these ideas of carefulness, of prudence, unto obedience, doing it carefully before God. Godly fear unto obedience. James says, show me your faith by your works. We could say, show me your fear by your works. Do you fear God? Yes. Well, do you obey him? If you don't obey him, it's hard to imagine that you really fear him. Show me your fear by your works. Show me your faith and your fear by your obedience. Like Noah did here. Show me your faith and your fear by your obedience. Show me your faith and fear by doing what I've told you to do. Build the ark according to the plans that I've given to you. Delight in the fear of Jehovah. Delight to submit to the will of the Father. That's godly fear. Delighting in the will of the Father. Delighting in the fear of God. Delighting in being, being obedient. Obedience is far better than sacrifice, is it not? Let us have grace whereby we may offer service to God with reverence and godly fear. Part of the end of that 12th chapter of Hebrews. Noah responded with reverent fear and obeyed God. He thus built the ark. He did what God told him to do. He built the ark. Fear of God, one has said, takes the form of reverent and submissive recognition in trust faith, and obedience. Listen to that again. Fear of God takes the form of reverent and submissive recognition in trust and obedience. And another said, it is the same as serving God or walking his way. Serving God or walking his way. We read in Deuteronomy a couple of passages, one of them in 6.13, Thou shalt fear Jehovah thy God, and him shalt thou serve. Serve. And thou shalt keep, in 8.6, Thou shalt keep the commandments of Jehovah thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. 
I think we can understand that walking in his ways is demonstrating godly fear. To walk in his ways and to fear him. We read that Noah was moved with fear concerning things not as yet seen. That's pretty reasonable, I thought, when I was looking that over. He was moved with fear concerning things not as yet seen. One of the things, fears I had as a child, I may have grown out of it by the time I was 30, was fear of the dark. But what is that? Fear of things not seen. Many people are afraid of things not seen, whether they're afraid of the dark or not. Afraid of things not seen, but we read that Noah was moved with fear concerning things not as yet seen. What were those things which God warned him of that he had not as yet seen? What did God tell him? We're not told specifically. He's told to build an ark. He's told that, he told Noah that he'd seen an end of men. And Noah found grace. And What did he tell Noah, though, outside of giving him instructions for building the ark? Did he tell him what he was going to do? He had 100 or 120 years to do it. I would imagine that he may have told him quite a bit. What would you have done if you were Noah? And, and God was telling you what was going to happen. Why am I building this box, God? Well, there's going to be a horrific flood. It's going to cover the entire earth. Everything that breathes is going to die except you and your family, Noah. Things not yet seen. How would you feel? How would you react to that announcement? Would it not put fear in you? Flood of waters. God was going to evacuate the entire world of all that lived. Would you not have been moved with godly fear? One of the things that we understand from the scriptures referring to Noah's being moved with godly fear was that he was a preacher of righteousness. I believe it's Peter that tells us that. He was preaching. Do we know that there's wrath coming upon the ungodly? Do we have any idea what that day is going to look like? Can you imagine Noah being told this? This flood, this wrath being poured out. And we like Noah, we know there's a day coming. Noah was preaching, trying to tell these people, trying to warn them, trying to get them to repent and turn to God. He was moved with godly fear to do this. When are we going to be moved with godly fear to do that more and more? Are there not yet many things that you haven't seen that would cause you to fear? Are you afraid to die? Yes, you've seen death. But it wasn't yours. It wasn't your death. You've seen death. Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid of death? 
there's much about death that we don't know yet. Like Noah. Things that he didn't yet know. And there are things much about death that we don't know. We've not seen it for ourselves. We may sing this psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And I can say that I don't fear death, but I cannot say that I don't fear dying. Do you understand? We've just, we've just witnessed, or by hearsay, we've witnessed the death of a few people. I don't want to die that way. I don't want to go through that. Yes, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of dying. You understand the distinction I'm making? You understand what I'm trying to say? I'm not afraid of passing into Jesus' arms. Why would I be afraid of that? But I may be afraid of what it takes to, to do that, if you know what I'm saying. But there's much about death that we simply don't know. We may fear no evil, but there remains much about death that we simply don't know. We haven't been told. We're moved with fear concerning things that we've not as yet seen. We haven't seen that. We just haven't seen it. You may have felt somebody else's cold, stiff hand. It'll be different when you're feeling your own hand getting cold and stiff. You understand what I'm trying to say? The thing that we should fear more than anything, however, as we look at Noah here, is disobedience to God. That's what we ought to fear. That's what being moved with godly fear causes us to do. Obey God. That's that godly fear. That's that reverence. It's reasonable to expect that when God told Noah what he was going to do that Noah preached unto dying men in the fear of God. Not fully knowing what was in store for them except that if they didn't repent that God was going to wipe them out. And I ask us again, do we not share his godly fear when we must speak to sinners in the hands of an angry God? Does it not bring us to fear? Do we not easily imagine Jonathan Edwards preaching that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Can't we imagine him trembling as he's preaching that? I know he looks in pictures very stoic and so on, but I can't imagine him not trembling because of his wonderful, masterful knowledge of the scriptures that he knew what he was speaking of. And I can't imagine him doing that without trembling, without fear and trembling. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. And to be held in reverence by all those around him. Psalm 89.7 He's greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. 
is our worship, is our attitude in worship, is our coming together. I'm not pointing any fingers. I think that by God's grace that we worship God in fear. But I'm just bringing this out for our contemplation. We look in Isaiah chapter 6 and we see how those, those uh, angels worshiped God, crying, holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, and they covered their eyes and they covered their feet. How do we come into God's presence? Do we cover our eyes? Do we cover our feet and so on? Do we come with a certain fear, knowing that we're coming before the living and the true God? John Flavel made this statement, the worship of God, he said, is to be performed with great fear and reverence. God is greatly to be feared. One translated this psalm to be vehemently feared and opposes it to that formal, careless, trifling, vain spirit which too often is found in those that approach the Lord and duties of his worship. How are we doing? How are you doing? How am I doing? We need to examine ourselves, not to examine anyone else. And it's easy in this part of the world to look around and see these churches that are incorporating all kinds of garbage and baloney into their worship services, whatever it takes to get people to come, whatever it takes to keep them, whatever it takes to make them happy. Never mind whether God's happy or not. We can look at them and we can say, well, we're doing pretty good by comparison. But we don't need to be looking at them. We need to be looking at ourselves. Looking into our own heart. Search me, O God, and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Do we recognize that God is to be held in reverence? If we would be true salt and true light toward others, there must be reverence and godly fear toward our God. They must see that we fear him in that revering way that we reverence God. That we know that he is present. You go around preaching about the omnipresence of God. Why are you doing that? Don't you know that God's present? There must be reverence and godly fear toward our God. We read in Ecclesiastes 5.1. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. For to draw nigh to hear is better than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they know not that they do evil. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Watch your step. Search your heart. Examine yourselves. These are all scriptural exhortations, brothers and sisters. And I'm happy to say that I think by God's grace that we do fear God. And it is by God's grace if we do. A few years back, I heard an account of George W. Bush when he was being interviewed while he was still president by some interviewer. And he said to this cameraman that was this young cameraman that was with the reporter that was interviewing him, he turned to him. His first words were to this cameraman. 
he spoke very courteously to this young man, but nonetheless he said, young man, straighten your tie. You're in the White House. You see the point? You see the point? He didn't demand that reverence was to be given to himself, but he was speaking about the house and what it represented. This is the house of God. In fact, the world is the house of God, but you know that this one, the people of God gather together, this is even more the house of God. You know what I mean? Whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God with reverence and godly fear. Service, that's what it's about. That's what Noah was doing. He was offering service to God with godly fear. He was obeying. He was building the ark. And he was meeting that requirement at the end of this 12th chapter, offering service well-pleasing to God with reverence and godly fear. Lenski, the commentator, says that the verb to serve is used repeatedly in this epistle with reference to the service and the worship which are due to God from all of us. End of quote. Because of his faith and his godly fear, Noah offered the service of obedience well-pleasing to God. May we fear offering to God anything less than our best. And I close with this from Genesis 9. I just thought it was relevant. And Noah building an altar unto Jehovah and he took of every clean beast and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And guess what? And Jehovah smelled the sweet savor. The aroma of obedience. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, search us and try us. We pray for thy glory and for the building of thy church. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Would you stand please for the benediction from the first Psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the wicked, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Jehovah and on his law doth he meditate day and night. Amen.